Thank you so much uh, for joining us once again on Fridays for our Twitter Spaces. My name is Eric Mokaya. I'm the founder of Mwango Capital. We aim to educate people, especially on matters finance, business, and to make sure that uh, people are well informed of what is happening in the markets. Centum is one of those companies that also attracts a lot of attention. And definitely since they posted their half-year results this week, we want to follow up on the conversation that we had early this year, uh, that was in August, uh, when we hosted uh, the CEO, James Moria, we deep dive into the Centum business model and what they do. Today, we're just following up on that, placing this in context. Since he gave us the long-term plan back in August, now we are kind of trying to see where the half-year results fall into that perspective. What I enjoy the most about hanging out with uh, James on Twitter spaces is mostly that he's one of the most open CEOs that I've seen around, being willing to come and answer questions. We'll be taking a few questions. Uh, so if you have some really burning questions, we only have him for an hour or so. So we want to make sure that you make the most use of him. If you go below our pinned tweet, you can write your questions there. We'll be keeping track of them. Our DMs are also very open. Uh, you can send it to Mongo Capital. And just below the pinned tweet also, we'll have a, a, a highlight of some of the things that he'll be sharing. So we'll be uh, delving into a variety of topics, including the buybacks and the first half year results. Maybe one more thing is that in the end, we'll also produce this in, as a podcast. So it will be available for you to uh, play it back and listen to it. Uh, without further ado, I want to welcome James. James, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your week has been and how the results were and later I'll come back and ask you a few questions about the business model so that you can put the business in context. So Karibu Sana James. Thank you very much Eric. Good evening ladies and gentlemen. Good pleasure to be with you this, this evening and I'm quite pleased to see that uh, there's a wonderful response. Uh, there's so many people who are interested in hearing about Centum and what you're doing and maybe generally the, the economy. So I'm looking forward to an exciting one hour. To your question, the week has been good. Sort of pursuing what our objective was, which I explained to you last time, was to increase cash operating profit, because that's the line that drives how much we can distribute to shareholders. And I'm pleased that as at half year, we were ahead of budget at 4.5 million. We were also ahead of where we were full year last year. And that was driven by just three things. One, increasing cash investment income went up to 1 billion shillings. Operating expenses, we are now at 30% of investment income, which is where we wanted to be. Last year, we were at uh, more than 40%. And we've done a reasonable job in reducing finance costs. So between operating expenses and finance costs, we are down to about 57%. I think we'll push it down far. So we have an operating profit of 425. We have a dividend policy of 30% of investment income. So as at half year alone, we've locked in about 300 million shillings for dividend which is higher than uh, full year last year. And so we are looking forward to what the second half has to offer. So that's, that's why I am Eric. Over to you. All right. I think for the people who are new people, it would be nice to just have a, a little bit of a breakdown. What does Centum do as a business and how do you make money? And we make money by investing in a portfolio of assets. They generate current investment income, which we book in our company financial statements as the investment income. And through the profit growth, uh, of those companies, you then have appreciation in value of the companies and you exit. And when you exit, you book a capital gain and we recycle that capital. So how do we finance our business? Our business has been financed largely organically through growth, uh, investing in assets, uh, sort of driving a value creation plan that leads to value uplift of those assets, ultimately exiting when uh, exit opportunities allow 
and recycling uh, that capital. So that's our business model. So people complain a lot when you sell great businesses. Why do you sell great businesses and not keep uh, them for life? No, no, that's a great question. What really drives value is for us is moving a company from a valuation of X to 3X. The, the major driver of value in sort of that story is normally the, the earnings growth. And in many businesses, as you improve the businesses, you get to a point where the opportunity to grow those earnings sort of plateaus. So you find that over time, you're not having as much growth in, in, in the earnings. So the, the, the drivers of growth may be revenue growth or margins improvement. So the idea is to sort of drive efficiency. So moving from sort of an average company to a great company, there's a lot of value that is created in, in that movement. And, and, and that's when you then exit. So if you look at the mission of Centrum, which is to create real tangible wealth by creating a channel through which investors can create extraordinary enterprises. It was around that delta, uh, getting into companies that are less than perfect, improving them, creating a lot of value in the process, and ultimately exiting to an investor that wants to buy a, a much better company. So if you hold on, uh, Eric, longer, you find that sort of the value is flat, and therefore your internal rate of return starts, starts declining. So that's the, that's, that's the space we, we, we exist in, and that's how we create capital, because the objective of the business over the last 10 years has been to create capital. That's why we exit. You only exit when you feel you are, the potential for further value creation has sort of been exhausted, and that future value can probably best be created by a different owner. Okay, so in that context, then, how does your income statement usually look like? In a normal business, most people are looking at uh, it has sales, it has expenses, it has... Uh, yeah the bottom line so then where do you get your money from our income statement on the income side has mainly two main lines that is gains on disposals of investments uh, that is where in the years that you have sold an investment and investment income investment income may be a combination of dividend interest director's fees etc then from an expense line you have your company operating costs and your finance costs then you have your operating profit however because we are required by IFRS to consolidate, you then have another set of financial statements, which is in the consolidated financial statements. And those are the P&Ls of all the businesses. So we do the consolidated financial statements largely for compliance purposes. So these are not the numbers we look at when P&L, which is how are we doing as an investor? Where are we on current income? Where are we on, on gains on disposal? And uh, where are we on costs? And where are we on finance costs? Then below that, you then have your unrealized value movement. So if you have value uplift on account of profit growth, so that then comes below that. But that is unrealized. You then need to actually do the exit to, to realize it. That's a very important clarification uh, because often you find uh, a lot of questions with people asking, especially why you emphasize the company results and not the consolidated ones. So maybe then you could tell us which companies do you own currently and what are the prime, the prime assets that you have? We have a marketable securities portfolio, which we sort of built over, over time. That's one aspect. So that's about, right now it's about 19% of, of total assets. Then we have a growth equity portfolio. And in there you have different companies. You have shares in companies like Isuzu, Sidian, uh, uh, Centum Real Estate, uh, two Rivers, uh, Longhorn, but diversified portfolio of assets within the growth equity uh, portfolio. So, so, so they, they serve 
two different purposes. Our marketable securities portfolio right now, the key purpose it serves is not to create capital growth. The key purpose it serves is right now is to generate uh, current income in terms of cash income. So right now that is generating about 15% of what is in that portfolio. Portfolio is doing two things, uh, investment income, but more importantly is those are businesses which we think we can improve and uh, increase the value of the underlying uh, company. So for it to qualify to be in there, there must be room for you to increase value and end up with a 25% IRR. I would say maybe a thing that you find with a lot of critiques, maybe your center is about the valuations and how you come up with them. You could speak a little bit about the IFRS and how you are supposed to do valuations and how they come up also so that you have these investment gains that you have to book sometimes. If if you read a lot about, let's say, Warren Buffett, some of the things that he says often is that some of these valuations make fluctuations in earnings very, very common. So that one time you have one time gains a lot that you have to book and sometimes you have to also book some substantial write-downs. You can explain a little bit about how you go about valuations. Yeah, as an investment company, you're required every end of year to do a valuation of your assets. And that is because uh, the balance sheet needs to give what is considered a true and fair view. So where there are marketable securities and a public market exist, you're meant to value them based on what those shares are trading in the public market. So, for example, we own 65% of long on it's listed, so that's straightforward. You just uh, check what it's trading at. And Now, for the shares that are not listed, you then have... Uh, several options. Where there are market multiples, where it's a profitable business, what you're meant to do is look for a comparable company and establish what the market multiple is of that comparable pool of companies and apply that multiple to that particular entity and then apply uh, a discount for illiquidity. So because the unlisted securities have typically liquidity uh, discounts, then you apply varying, varying discounts to that. Now, the key driver value will tend not to be multiples because multiples tend to sort of not fluctuate too much. So what will really drive value is, is earnings growth because that tends to be the major sort of variable that, that you're tracking. Now, where the company is not profitable yet, it's sort of at initial stages, you then carry it at cost. And then what you do is that every year you assess whether that cost is realizable or whether it has been impaired. If it's been impaired, then you pass impairment uh, provisions. And if the basis changed, it's a profitable entity, you then do a valuation based on a company that most closely approximates to that similar business. That would be a good point also maybe to explain a little bit about the 413 um, uh, in impairment provisions. Uh, I think that you've done in the past. I think that places yeah. a bit in context. So are you done with impairments though, like uh, so far? Or do you see some impairments? And first and foremost, whether you have impaired, whether you have, and realize losses, they are, they, are, they are non-cash. That means you've not, it's unrealized. It's sort of like you having a share in a company, it was trading at 15 shillings, it's now trading at 10 shillings. You then have a five shilling. So you only realize the loss if you sell it, and if you sell it. So impairment provisions will apply if you've not booked a previous revaluation gain. So say you've, you've moved an asset from 100 million to 20 million shillings. What will happen is that in your co comprehensive income, you'll pass a revaluation gain of the difference. If then in a subsequent year, profitability comes down and you 20 million to 50 million, then that will move as a revaluation loss. But if your investment base is 100 million, and then you do an impairment assessment and you assess in your view, I think the realizable value is 80 million, 
that 20 million is passed as an impairment provision because you don't have a reserve against which you can offset that decline in value. As long as you are in the investment business, you'll, you'll always have uh, assessments for impairment provisions. You'll always have impairment assessment for revaluation gains and losses. So they are inherent in the business. If you're investing in securities, you cannot say that um, you are done booking gains and losses. You're going to have gains and losses. Some are driven by market forces that are beyond your control, but it's inherent in the business. I think what is critical is now what is realized um, at the point when you have the actual uh, exit. I think that's a very important distinction to make in terms of impairment provisions and those write-offs. They are part and parcel of a, a company that makes investments. I want to dig into especially two companies that have been especially interesting in the first half. One of them is, uh, is, is Cedian Bank and the other one is Longhorn. Maybe you can explain a little bit about what you saw in terms of those two businesses. I know you referenced them a lot in the half-year results. So you can explain a little bit what happened in their performance in the first half of the centum year. Cedian Bank is one of our portfolio companies. We own about 82% of that business. And this year, they did very well. Uh, they had significant growth in bottom line uh, profitability. Uh, that quarter, they were well over 300 million uh, shillings from full year last year, which was about uh, 19 million shillings. So good growth in, uh, in the loan book, good growth in the unfunded income. Uh, NPLs were down to 11%. Uh, NPLs they needed additional capital, so towards the end of the third quarter, we provided some of that capital just to support their growth. And as I mentioned earlier, growth in bottom line is what really drives growth in, in, in our value ultimately. So, so CDN is trending quite well. It's focusing on the SME market, and um, they're doing a good job in that particular space. They closed a number of lines with, with lenders. These are lines for on lending. Uh, they're engaging with a number of lenders for possible other forms of capital, whether it's tier two capital, and the number of investors who want to put a tier one capital. So I would say CDN is very much on the value creation path that we, we had for it. Uh, Longhorn is a listed company. We own 65% of the business. It was affected in the previous year because of uh, schools closures, and that affected the business. Uh, they cut costs, but still uh, uh, revenues fell faster than, uh, than cost. So they made a loss last year. This year, they had strong recoveries across many markets, uh, not just in Kenya. They are very well diversified across the continent, uh, moved on to also their digital platform. So this year, they had a great first half. I think they're going to do even better in the second half because they, they're quite conservative in how they book their revenues, uh, just trying to make sure that it matches when they're about to get paid. So again, very strong recovery in uh, profitability. So although we had those strong recoveries in, in profitability, they were not reflected in the revaluation movement. So the share price of it came down. And uh, CDN, we didn't have uh, any significant uh, value uplift. We are carrying it at 0.6 times the uh, book. That's also very important, especially when you're valuing a listed company and then you have to include it in the results. At least you have the market price for that. But I think for private companies, it's harder uh, to get a, a market price for it, like CDN Bank. But I think also like something that I noted in my notes here, the CDN received around, I think, a billion from Oiko Credit and half a billion from Africa Guarantee Fund. So they've taken up quite a bit of capital. I know they also did uh, 
a race in the first half of the year, and I think you participated in it. Now, what's the future you see, especially for this bank, Cedian Bank? And I know we'll be hosting the CEO quite soon also in the process. Also, you can give us a little bit of context in terms of how the bank looks like and how it's uh, positioned going forward. Any business starts with a customer, and we invested in this company in 2014. And it was a relatively small bank. Uh, total balance sheet was about 10 billion shillings. Now they are close to 40 billion uh, shillings. Um, and, and they have created a niche for themselves in the SME space. It's an entrepreneur's bank. They do a lot of trade finance. They do lending around that, all small and medium-sized enterprises, offering an integrated suite of, uh, of services. They, 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 they continue to experience strong growth, and they, their business plan for us is quite exciting. It's sitting in the it's in the sitting in the investment portfolio because we believe there's still some uplift, and and I think it's sort of reflected by the interest by by investors looking to provide either lines of credit. So the OICO was likely for them to get SME lending lines. Uh, then they got uh, a line which was a credit guarantee line, so that then there's risk sharing. Should there be NPLs again to promote SME lending? So that's really Cedian sweet spot, and and it's a growth bank. It's a bank you can see growing bottom line. 20-30% year on year into the foreseeable future. Thank you. It's 20 minutes in, and this is the time, especially for someone who's skeptical about the company. The CEO has offered uh, one hour of his time to actually come and answer those questions. So if you do have questions, just send them to us. We may not allow people to come to the mic to speak, but we do allow questions so I can ask them on your behalf. So send them our way so that we can be able to engage them as much as possible. There's something that is very important for shareholders, which is returns. And I think one way you can return uh, in investor money is mostly either through the share appreciation over time, but also uh, dividends and share buybacks. I know this week you also commented about the share buybacks, so maybe you can provide a little bit of context on your thinking along those lines and what you've uh, thought about, especially the dividend policy, uh, given the trajectory of the company in, how, in the first half of the year. Thank you, Eric. So the, the dividend policy of Centum is, is to distribute 30% of investment income. And, and we came up with this policy uh, in 2018, 2019. And that meant that we needed to have a more steady line of investment income. And so the focus was then switching from a high reliance on gains on disposal to a more predictable investment income that you could increase and then reducing operating expenses and finance costs so that you're not distributing capital. So that then when you have exits, those exits can then be recycled into new investments without having to distribute them. So that's what we've been working on over the last two years. So dividend policies at 30% and uh, sort of working on growing that uh, investment income line. Now, the, the share buybacks were waiting for the rules, um, and this were issued towards the end of October. I think they became public in, in November. And uh, the investment committee of the company is looking at that specific issue together with the um, denominated with one of the advisors. And um, the idea, the objective at the moment is trying to find an opportunity to give some of our retail investors who may wish to exit uh, a way out at a reasonable at a reasonable price, and then allow those who want to stay in to stay in for the longer the, the longer term while allowing those who want to exit an opportunity to exit. We did an analysis of traded volumes of shares over the last four years. We have 660 million issued shares. Uh, the average trading volume is about 40 million shares, so it's less than 10% in, annually. So the shares that are trading are largely 
uh, the smaller holdings. The larger investors are fairly constant or steady in their holdings. I think we, we have the capacity to put a floor and, and give those investors who cannot get a reasonable price in the market an opportunity to exit. But right now we don't have anything specific because the finance committee was just mandated uh, this Monday by the board to, to look at that issue and come back to the board with, with a specific recommendation. So I don't want to preempt the recommendation that the investment committee of the board will come back with. I, I know I think the most important is because when you look at uh, private equity investments, which is what you do, it, it tends to be longer term. Even when you look at the funds, you're looking at investors with a longer term commitment, not investors who are looking at coming in this week, living after six months, living after a year. You don't have enough time to sort of see through and realize the value you, you, you can potentially realize. Fortunately for us, the top 10 shareholders of the organization have been fairly stable almost for five years. At that level, there's been a lot of stability. The issue is with the sort of the smaller holdings. So that's what, that's what we're working around. The, the other thing we've been doing is it's one thing to deal with uh, pricing issues in the market, which are driven by sentiment. But the thing that is really hard to fix is the NAV, because the NAV really ultimately underpins the value even for the longer-term investors. So even in the last two years when we've had uh, market challenges, the, the focus has been on... Uh, on value preservation at, 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 at the NAV level. And that's what we've been doing. So we've had some declines, but those have largely been because of either uh, impairment provisions or revaluation uh, uh, losses, which have reduced the, 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 the carrying values, but not necessarily mean those are the values that we believe we can realize if we are to go to the market. Uh, we're just sort of being conservative. So if I take an example of an asset like NAS Airport Services, as an example of that asset, we wrote it down from 1 billion shillings to 200 million shillings during the COVID pandemic. Today, we are carrying CDN at 2.6 billion shillings. If we offer 2.6 billion, we will not take it. So we are carrying a lot of these assets that uh, I, I think what you would consider sort of conservative valuations, which, I think, which we think is prudent. Great. A uh, couple of questions now coming through the DM. I'll, I'll front a few of them. Maybe you can also give us context in, in terms of who are the major stakeholders in uh, or shareholders in Centum. And secondly, also to inform us as well about the share price and the movement over the years, if you can comment about it. Yeah, so the major shareholders of the company, the number one shareholder is the, now the export 30%. Then you have KDC, which is formerly ICDC, about 24%. Then from there, you have a host of, you sort of drop to shareholders who have less than like 2-3%, uh, largely institutional uh, shareholders. But the top 30 shareholders own about 65% of the company. Uh, the rest, the, the, the rest 38,000 shareholders hold about 35% of the company. So the, the, the ownership is fairly concentrated and the tail is fairly widely held in terms of the smaller volume. The price has been on, on, on relatively small volumes. Those, those small volumes end up then dictating the price of the entire entity. I think one of the significant constraints we've had as the insider trading rules, because before they could come into the market you know, at any time, now it's, it's a very restricted window. It's only one month after the announcement of, of, of results. So they're not constantly in the market. to And, and you know, one has to be very careful because at any given time for an investment company, you have what you consider market-sensitive uh, information. Now, let me come to the issue of the share price. You know, if you look at the share price 
it peaked in 2015, uh, slightly above, above 60 shillings. But at that time, the index was also about 5,700. So the index has come down to about 2,000. So it's come down to about 60% or 65%. And, and the share has followed, uh, has followed suit. But I think our price has fallen a bit further and for a number of reasons. One, obviously, was speculation around the health of our major shareholder uh, when it was announced that it was, it was unwell and what would be the future of the company and what would happen in the transition. I think that uncertainty sort of also affected the price a bit more than it would otherwise have, have had an impact. So we had a number of unique factors that were specific to 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 center. So that's as much as I can say about the price based on my analysis and, and read of of the situation. All right. Another question that maybe you can't comment about is that the share buy, buyback is supposed to. There are some regulations that have come up by the CMA uh, which may limit it about the ten percent, ten percent about the thirty day weighted price uh, average. Uh, is that something that is of a concern to you as you maybe consider share buybacks? So again, yeah, that's one of the things that we're looking at. Uh, but again, our understanding is that you can get an exemption. And uh, so the base of the exemption is what we need to study. And that's why it's not a straightforward issue because of the rules. And, and, and again, if you come at a price where you can't get enough shares, you cannot come in until after, after one year. So one has to sort of structure it carefully. All right. Then there is something that we discussed before. There are some people who posted a letter about Centum, I think, and you have some good thoughts about around that letter. So I think maybe you can share your perspective on it. Uh, which letter? The one you haven't read. <laughs> yeah, you are the one who was telling me about it. But uh, something, Chris, one time he really called me uh, and he was really, really uh, mad at me. And that morning somebody had written uh, something about the organization and myself on Twitter and I was responding and uh, and so he was asking me, how did you even come to read about it and uh, why are you even responding? His point was that you are an eagle and, 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 and many of you on this uh, forum, you're on this forum because you're doing great things, but you don't stop what you're doing to focus on what other people are saying. So I, frankly, I've not read it. So perhaps maybe Eric, if there's anything there that you think is... Uh, is merits a conversation on your platform and you can ask me any specific question great i think that's just an opening to the people in the audience who have specific questions you can just front them and then we'll be able to check them up the next question would be how the loss of the major shareholder affected the the business as as go and i know like one of the goals of every person is actually to create businesses that outlive their existence so i think centum should be one of them. How has that impacted you and impacted the company going forward? I think the biggest impact is the loss of a man with a lot of wisdom and who you'd call at any time and, and have a discussion with. He had a lot of wisdom and uh, and a lot of experience. Uh, you know, that is not something that you can replace. It's, it's, it's replaceable in that respect. However, from an operational perspective, we had a plan uh, which has not changed. And the late Dr. Chris Trib was not involved in execution. He did not have any management responsibility. So the family has had a fairly smooth transition, so that has not affected the company in any way. And the slot he occupied in the board has been filled. So, yes, it was a heavy loss for us as individuals. Personally, for me, I'd worked with heavy loss for me. But that's life. You move on. That's true. I think there's a couple of questions here about two rivers. Maybe you can uh, give us a little bit, maybe progress report on the project and perhaps where you are. And also 
a couple of questions that are coming in is about what are the lessons drawn from two rivers? Some, a question from Felix Akuku who's asking are lessons drawn from two rivers variation and the current realities uh, around the, the business. So maybe you can give us a little bit of flavor on what is happening in two rivers. I didn't get the first question about the project, so maybe we'll come back to that later. Let me just pick up the question. It is a company that we own 58%, and we have two other shareholders. PRDL has a number of uh, portfolio companies within it. It's a, it's a holding company. And uh, one of the companies that it has is owned 50% of TRLC, which is uh, the company that owns the mall. And TRLDL holds it together with the old Bicho. In, in my letter to the shareholders, I indicated that we are looking at the capital structure of TR, TRDL and TRLC. Because if you look at the P&L, although they have operational profitability, they have a loss on account of finance costs. So at the TRLC level, the idea was to reduce the senior debt and get an equity participation uh, instrument on a portion of that debt so that you could reduce finance costs and bring them to below operating uh, income. I, I'm pleased to report that we concluded that on uh, 1st of December, uh, which is this week. So that has now been done at TRLC level, and that has been concluded. And therefore, going forward, uh, that company is, is profitable both at an operating level and at a bottom line level. And uh, the idea there is to eliminate all interest-bearing debt and equity capital. So it becomes like where we hold Palmarina or any other company which does not have a debt, especially except for debt sitting in, 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 in project level. There's a lot of interest for that, and there are, there's work going on. And just like with TRLC, um, I'm quite positive that we'll conclude that as well. In terms of the valuation of the development rights within TRDL, I think just this month uh, they sold some substantial development rights to, to an incoming investor, actually just at valuation. And uh, St. Ambri has also bought development rights at the valuation and been able to develop uh, units uh, within, within TRDL. MZZ, um, which is uh, an affordable housing product, that product has sold out of 240 units, they have sold over 90%. The pricing of the development rights is competitive because it's not just taking the land value, it's also taking the infrastructure value, the infrastructure that has been provided. So if you are an investor within TRDL ecosystem, you don't have to invest in power, water, sewage, ICT. All that infrastructure cost comes bundled up in what TRDL sort of puts together. As, as the price of development rights. It's significantly cheaper than uh, buying the land in other places and then providing those other services yourself. So it's fairly competitive. And because of that competitiveness, the developments that have been done by Santa Maria and others now who are coming in have sold very well. So whether it's Riverbank or, 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 or Mzizi. Obviously, the issue is that when you have a long-term asset like that, with that kind of structure, you need a capital structure there that matches it, and that's something that we're just about to, to complete. Now, the other thing I wanted to add is that from an accounting perspective, if you look at our consolidated financial statements, two things. Although we own 58%, we account for it as if we own 100%. So we, we consolidate it line for line into our financial statements. The second thing, we own 58%, not because we put in 58% of the capital. It's because when the investors came in, they came in with about 6 billion shillings, but they only got 42% of the capital. So we had a value up on account of our sweat equity. So if you look at what we've contributed 
from a capital perspective is probably less than 20%, but what we ended up with was 58%. So the 38% is sweat equity and rather than actual cash into the business. But now it's a subsidiary and therefore you need to, to consolidate it line for line in your consolidated financial statements. There are so many questions that are coming. So one is about tech advancement and the effects of COVID-19 on the company. Of course, it has affected the company, but has it maybe a challenge you to think about investing in such long-term investments as data centers? Yes, thank you. We have a data center in Florida, so that's one of the infrastructure assets that is, that, that is there already. And uh, yes, there's, there's interesting ideas in, uh, in technology, and we are looking at uh, opportunities there. The, um, the, the criteria we have is not uh, sector-specific. It's largely around specific opportunities where there's value to create and not just the, the target internal rate of return, but also generate an NPV. A net present value of at least a billion. We've told the team internally, even if you relax it to 500 million, at least let it have sufficient upside uh, potential. So that is what is that is what sort of is driving the the pursuit of uh, new investment opportunities. In terms of the impact of COVID, yes, you saw it in the in the profitability of the companies uh, last year. They they came down, but also the recovery has been fairly fast because COVID was not there long enough to have to cause the uh, structural issues in the underlying company. So, so the recovery has been quite fast. The, the key thing for us from an investment perspective is how much can you grow without having to inject a lot of incremental capital so that when you end up with a value, with a value. Another question that has come in from Tony is about uh, Cascadia. Maybe we can talk about has it stalled and when will wax resume? I think that's his question. Project time, the cost and selling price implications or something. Yeah, yeah so Cascadia is a project that belongs to Sengu Heights Limited. So it's just adjacent to two rivers. It's 400 units, about 260 or 70 of them are sold. The, the previous contractor failed, not just in Kenya, but in Uganda. They were regional contractor. And the contractor was replaced. A new contractor has been on site. The target completion date for that project is September 2020. So it's coming along very well. All right. I think another question is about how the debt restructuring is going on. I know you've reduced finance costs uh, in the past half or so, and you've cut some OPEX. Or so. uh, someone is wondering how sustainable that is as a long-term way to move to profitability. And secondly, debt reduction has been a very key component in terms of your strategy in the past year or so and going forward. Where are you in that uh, progress and uh, what can we expect in the second half? Okay, thank you. So there are two questions in there. One is the, the restructure. Actually, there are three questions. One is the restructure, the other one is on the cost to income, and the third is on the finance cost. So I'll just take them in that order. On the restructure, uh, what we did a few years ago is because we were investing in very early stage companies, we need to provide a lot of management support to the portfolio. That meant that we then created a, a shared business uh, services called CBS, Center Business Solutions, which was offering shared services. However, the objective is always to move these companies towards uh, independence so that from a, a portfolio management parenting model, you either are adopting a hands-off or a supervisory approach, not one where you are, you are an activist or you're running portfolio companies from Centum. So part of the objective is to create a management team and a governance structure within each portfolio company so that then you are left with what are portfolio management responsibilities as opposed to management responsibilities. So through that maturity profile, the need for us to have a shared services center 
sort of reduced and eventually it was not necessary because the companies had insourced the internal functions. Yet you are carrying the cost. So you're carrying a duplicative cost at the top. So it was part of our strategy and uh, the fifth pillar of organization effectiveness to eventually phase out that particular function completely. And that we completed in September of this year. And that gave operational autonomy to all the businesses. Now, the second question is on cost to income. I believe it's very critical that you have an investment company that's efficient so that the income that comes up, you're not then consuming most of it in your own management functions. That's why we've capped it at. My own belief is because the costs are fixed as you grow the investment income, that percentage will come down over time. That is to allow you to have distributable income. If, if you are at 50, 60%, then you don't have distributable income. On finance costs, again, we wanted to have a sustainable dividend policy and we wanted to distribute dividends out of recurrent investment income, not capital gains. So you also had to reduce finance costs. Now, to reduce finance costs meant that you need to reduce debt because that is the major driver of the finance costs. And that meant that then out of the exits that we had, we prioritized debt reduction and then increase the portion of the portfolio that is generating a cash yield, which is the marketable securities portfolio. So the cash yield on the marketable securities portfolio right now is about 15%. The cash yield on our traditional equity portfolio, any equity investment is about 2%. So if you want cash, you need to go to sort of a marketable securities portfolio. That has been the objective. So over the last two years, we've increased that by about uh, 4 or $5 billion and, and and reduced them. So if you looked at our balance sheet, the total marketable securities portfolio was $7.8 billion, and debt was $4 billion. So net, we are positive $3.8 billion. So we've achieved the objective. We've taken long-term debt to zero, and on a short-term basis, uh, our, our average cost of debt is 12%. So it makes sense to draw down on the facilities to then invest in the marketable securities uh, portfolio. That was the rationale, so that then you could have a sustainable base to then have a sustainable dividend pool. Perfect. We have 15 more minutes. I should say that if you want more information about the company, it's good to check the investor relations section. They have a really good and detailed half-year presentation, which is on the website also. And the IRs in charge is also very reachable on email, so it's possible to get most of your questions answered. So many questions that have come in. I think I'll pick a few. One of them about Cedian Bank. Since you own 82% of the business, do you feel like in the event of capital injection that you really have enough cash to actually inject into the bank? And secondly, as a follow-up, is a bit of the overdraft that you have. Is it a bank overdraft that is on the company balance sheet? Can you speak about the liquidity of Centum in that? As you also comment a little bit about capital injection on Cedian Bank. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the Cedian Bank. Our, our investment model is, as I said earlier, is to create wealth by creating companies that can attract other investors. So it is not our intention to be the only investor in Cedian Bank. The, the intention is to have a platform that enables other investors to come in and invest in the bank. And indeed, in any of our portfolio companies that are value up to what we came in originally. That's, that's, that's the business model. And I think CDN is a good example where you've seen a range of investors come in to make additional investments in the, in the bank. We don't mind being diluted as the additional equity capital is deployed by that party investors in the bank. And if you look at... Uh, one of our successful investments in the past, uh, say Almasi, well, we held 58% of it. That's, that's a structure, and, and, and that's really our business model. We'd rather have a smaller share of a larger business than a big share of a small business. So, so CDN is out there, we're engaging investors uh, for that. Now, number two is on, uh, is on the liquidity position. 
Now, if you look at our, our structure of marketable securities, and I think you asked me the question on, on email, uh, Eric, today we are carrying about 7.8 billion and we've been increasing the marketable securities portfolio. So if you look at where we started off, and this is on the investor presentation, if you go to the IR section of our website, you'll see on slide 30, you'll see the breakdown of what we are carrying. As at March 2021, we had 7.5 billion in marketable securities made up of largely government securities, cash and cash equivalents, and, and mutual funds. Right now, it's 7.89. So we increased it to about 300 million. Now, because the yield is higher than the cost of borrowing, you're earning a cash yield of 15% in aggregate. It makes sense to draw down on your facilities. If we were earning less than cost of borrowing, then it would not make sense to draw down on the facilities. So if you are, say, say we are earning 10%, then what would make sense is to sell down the portfolio and pay down the facility. But if you have a facility at 12% and you have an average yield of 15%, then it makes sense to, to fully draw down on those facilities and optimize that, uh, that, that, that investment uh, opportunity. Now, from a recurrent cash perspective, we don't necessarily use the money that is sitting in the market because what we use is the income, which is the investment income you saw in the in the in the in the P and L in the total return statement. So this year we had an income of a billion shillings, and from that, that's what covers your operating expenses and covers your your operating expenses and your finance costs. So we ended up with about four hundred million, and that is what you see reflected there through an increase in marketable securities. And, that, and it's from that investment income that you will then pay your, your dividend. I hope Eric have answered that. Yes, I think so. Maybe a, a couple more questions that have come in. So maybe the letter which you haven't read, one, one of the issues that was raised, which maybe you can address, is about the imposition of contractors on personal projects, on, on contractors who are sent and projects. So maybe I think one of the questions that is coming here is that it raises an issue of ethical and conflict of interest issues. So maybe you can be forthright enough to speak about if there are any conflict of interest in terms of the projects that you run personally and those that are centenary projects. No, thank you very much for that. Uh, I think you're referring to the Cascadia project. So what happened is that one of the shortlisted contractors had worked for a company that I am a member of the board of previously. And I did disclose to the board that that's a contractor who had served that, in that particular project and they had done a good job. And that's the most you can do. And the fact that you have served as a contractor or a supplier, you've worked for any of the members of the board in their other capacities does not disqualify you from serving in the company if you are able to do so. I think the key issue is to disclose that particular uh, issue, which is what I did. It so happened that that particular contractor was the lowest uh, and they were selected by the team on their own merits, but it came up at the board where I sit and I disclosed that the contractor was worked for one of the companies and they have done a good job and so I have no hesitation uh, recommending them. I hope that answers the question. I hope so. And I think the the listener, if they're not satisfied, they can still ask, ask again. At this point, also, there's a really nice question, which I, I was not very aware of. You do have an agribusiness arm called Greenblade. Could you comment about it and uh, its future plans? No, Greenblade is a business uh, venture we started a few years ago as a, as a greenfield uh, business. And we started it in uh, it's on, in Olkalao. 
and they have recently diversified to this as well. So their main crop is chives, and and it's it's doing very well. They're exporting uh, right now. We're exporting about forty tons a month, and for herbs that's a lot. And they're looking to grow that to about a hundred tons a month. And it's a business that we are targeting to generate an EBIT of about four million dollars in another two three years. And if you achieve that EV EBITDA of six times, that's about $24 million in, in valuation. It's a great business. Uh, EBITDA margins above 50%. It's a business that is it's, 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 a, it's on a growth trajectory. It's a business we are carrying at, uh, at, actually, it's one of the business we've impaired in the past because uh, we are carrying it at cost less previous losses. All right. We are really out of time. So I'll ask you one question, which is more about um, management skills, success, job succession, and nurturing young talent. So you have a very robust graduate trainee uh, program. So maybe you can comment a little bit about your thoughts around nurturing young talent to take over companies. Since, I mean, like in VDL, the, the, the CEO is quite young. And I know like most of the subsidiaries also are run by very young people. In terms of your planning around the future of Centum and nurturing talent, what are your thoughts around that? And what would you advise people who are in the audience and are seeking to start a, out a career in investment uh, management and uh, investing like this. Yeah, so that's something we've been doing very proactively and giving young people an opportunity to come in at uh, graduate trainee level and go up. So an example in uh, VDL, Ken was in this program before and who is now the COO of Santa Marie, joined us straight out of university 34 years and it's gone up the ranks. And, and that can be said for a lot of people in different businesses. So this is something we've driven proactively at a shareholder level in terms of nurturing young talent and giving them an opportunity in our portfolio companies. But also many of them have ended up in different capacities in the industry because the idea was not to absorb all of them. And that's the same thing we're encouraging in our portfolio companies. If we can have people coming up through the ranks. What we found is that the retention tends to be better for for staff coming in at that lower level. A quick question about Akira. Where is it currently and do you plan on sinking more wells? We are working on doing on sinking more wells. We are working on a joint development agreement with, with one of the experienced developers. And 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 that is coming along well. Well, there's been a bit of a hiccup with all these uh, discussions taking place. But that conversation is going on. We have a PPA. The, the tariff for Akira is fairly low. So when you compare with other alternative sources of power, it's still very, very competitive. So the big focus for us is getting the drilling going. Great. At this point, we'll ask you more for your closing thoughts around the outlook. And then you can also give us perspective heading into an election year, what you're looking at. And I know you're in the market also for buying some businesses. So perhaps you can uh, make a pitch for Centum for the next half year and the full year and going into 2022. Yes. So the focus is to continue to execute the value creation uh, initiatives. Uh, across the businesses. You've seen, I think, in half year, you've seen uh, improved profitability across a whole range of companies. And as I said earlier, we are not in the business of owning perfect companies, in the business of moving from companies that can get better from what they are, how can we then improve them and, 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 and increase their valuation. So that's one of our areas of uh, focus where we have uh, exit opportunities, see whether we can take them, that's if we get uh, valuations that are compelling. And where we come across attractive investment opportunities, see whether we can grab them. I think last year was a very challenging year, so I know we are going into an election year, but I doubt we can have as challenging a period as we had uh, as we had last year. I'm fairly sort of 
optimistic about how the environment will be given just what we've gone uh, we've gone through. I think again from a valuation perspective, if you look at where the share is trading today, even strip out uh, the entire real estate portfolio, assume it's valued, uh, take the MSP and the the rest of the growth equity portfolio minus the debt. Again, I, I think it presents an exciting opportunity because I know we'll, uh, as the sentiment turns, you have significant uh, room for upside. From a dividend perspective, I think we're on track. Uh, half year, we are at sort of locked in about 300 million shillings. So looking at where we end up in the second half, uh, which is coming along well with all the initiatives that we've put in place. All right. Uh, did you comment something about the outlook going forward? I think for me, the outlook is positive. Say for any shocks that come, uh, you know, we are hoping we don't have... Uh, I was getting a bit concerned with this variant. Uh, we don't end up in a second round of, uh, of, of lockdowns. We have uh, a peaceful election. I think say for those two, if we don't have those kind of shocks, then I think the, the, the recovery has been very positive. And what has really impressed me is uh, investor confidence. Even if, for example, and I look at what uh, the collections are were in the past half of this year. They were almost as high as the whole of the previous year. Uh, the year ended March uh, 2021. Uh, just between March 2021 and September 2021, we collected as much as the whole of the other 12 months in, in aggregate. So investor confidence is, is strong. Uh, my, my, my hope and prayer is that we don't have uh, an external shock. I think that's a good place to wrap up for now and say thank you, Bona James, for joining us so much. Uh, we hope to have you again. Maybe you can say Kwaheri. Thank you very much, Eric, for hosting me. And uh, I'm always available to engage. So feel free to share your questions with Eric. I hope you'll host me again and uh, we can have a... Uh, a discussion. Thank you so much. Goodbye all for now. Uh, see you next time. Thank you.